When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Not Just Cricket with me, Mark Nicholas. Six shows then with guests who have a link to the great game, each of whom have a remarkably successful story of their own. I've got a fabulous guest this week, a person who appears to know no boundary in her adventures and who undertakes them all with a remarkable blend of steel and charm. Dr. Sarah Fain qualified as an obstetrician in 1988 and travelled through Pakistan and Afghanistan as a medic during the Soviet-Afghan war before returning in 2001 when the Taliban held sway. No matter, she soon set up Afghan Connection, a charity which, over this recent 20-year period, supported some 500,000 children with health, education and, wait for it, cricket. Sarah, this has been an extraordinary journey, frankly awe-inspiring. I sort of have decided you must have a rod of steel running through your back, and I wonder where that comes from. Is it your parents? Uh, Yes, I'm very fortunate with the parents I I was born to. Um, My father was an incredible community figure. He was a general practitioner, and um, he was a remarkable father to all of us, but he was also somebody that changed a lot of lives and really cared about people in the community and a great example to us all. And my mother looked after us beautifully and is incredibly strong and a great matriarch. So I had good genes and, and wonderful examples in my life. Yes, and presumably a lot of courage because both of them must have been concerned for you on some of these journeys. I think my poor parents, um, what I put them through in my life, I really feel apologetic for that. And I'm getting my comeuppance now because my children are doing exactly the same thing to me. And I really now understand quite what it must have been like for my parents over these years. And you, obviously through your father's work then, you had an interest in medicine that led to you studying medicine and indeed becoming an obstetrician. I think it was partly my father, yes, but I I never had the self-belief that I could be a doctor because I wasn't very good at science. I was a good linguist. But I spent a gap year in India in a very remote village where nobody spoke English and everybody had only met one white person before who'd happened to be a nurse. And so they thought I was medical and they kept coming to my mud hut and asking me to deliver babies or cure their ills. And that really really made me want to be a doctor. And although I was meant to be studying French and Latin at university, after a year of that, I changed left, did my GCSE O-level science by post um, and got onto the pre-med course and then did medicine at Bristol. Ah. Which part of India were you in? I was in South India. South India is spectacular, isn't it? I have a bit of a history down there too. My mother went to school in Uti with three sisters and didn't leave till just before the, the first war, actually. So we both got a little bit of, of the subcontinent in us, though you would have a lot more of the subcontinent because you disappeared in the late 1980s, heading for northwest Pakistan and, and ended up almost by default in Afghanistan. Tell us that, that story. So um, the joy of medical school, and really perhaps the only joy for me, was that in in our fifth year we were allowed to go anywhere in the world to do three months of medicine. 
And I went to the northwest frontier province of Pakistan, worked with an amazing woman who was an obstetrician there and saw some extraordinary medicine. And I was very lucky to meet some eccentric doctors who went out every year to operate on the war wounded in the Soviet-Afghan war because it was right on the border with Afghanistan. And they invited me back the following year when I just qualified as a doctor and they sent me off to a Mujahideen camp. Um, the Mujahideen, as you know, were the, they were fighting the Soviets. I stayed in this camp. I used to have to dress up as a man to travel around. And I did clinics for refugee women and children um, just on the border with Afghanistan. And that's really what got my Afghan journey started. That was in 88. I then came back and had four children and did a bit more medicine. But I went back to Afghanistan again in 2001 at the invitation of some yet more eccentric and amazing um, men who were ex-army officers and had built a clinic in the Panjshir Valley. And they wanted me to go and visit their clinic. You set up the Afghan Connection, which is a remarkable charity, when you went back in 2001. Tell us about that, why and, and how. Okay, so in 2001, I was um, invited to go and visit this clinic in, in the Panjshir Valley. And it was when the Taliban were in, largely in control of Afghanistan. And the civil war was really bad there. It, they'd had 23 years of war. And I had this extraordinary journey across Afghanistan to try and get to the Panjshir. I met the most amazing people. I saw a country that had been totally devastated by war. Because I'd had my children, I was less of an adventurer. I had a different perspective on life. And seeing women that couldn't feed their children and seeing the situation out there was very shocking. And I listened to all the stories of the patients that came into my clinics. And I was looked after so beautifully by the Afghan people that I came back to this country and decided that really I could never live my life in the same way, that something out there had totally affected me, the sort of culmination of all those things. And so I wanted to try and give back. I, I wanted to raise money for the clinics I'd visited, for the doctors I'd met. And I started raising money and I raised more than I thought. And so I started a charity. Yes! You're now working in a mother children's clinic. Obviously, you're your sense of human rights is deeply set into your soul. How did this manifest itself in cricket then? Because that's our connection. That's why this podcast is taking place. You've contributed in a way to cricket that I can't think that anybody else has and galvanized it in Afghanistan, who have now become a major cricket-playing nation. Tell me the very germ of that initiative. The charity sort of went from health to education. We did masses for education and especially girls' education and built lots of schools and trained teachers and set up big programmes for education in the north. But then in 2008, one of my sons noticed that the Afghan cricket team were in the bottom of the world, but they were beginning to do well and they needed support. And he said that we really got to do something about that. So I ended up taking bags of cricket kit out to the National Academy in Kabul with me. And the, the National Academy at that stage was just a dust field. And I arrived with my, like my kit for the Afghan national cricket team. And this was um, just before they went off to try and qualify for the World Cup. And after that, they just kept on winning tournaments. And the sort of great story was that these were players that had been refugees in Pakistan and they had had the most brutal time. They'd fled the war in Afghanistan and they'd been brought up in refugee camps. And the one thing that had kept them going was cricket. And they'd, they'd seen the Pakistani cricket and they'd sort of torn down branches and made bats and they'd um, made balls out of sticky tape and, and tearing up their shirts. And they'd had this great dream that one day they'd get back to their country 
and that they would form a team and that they would get to the World Cup. So when I met them in 2008, they'd started this journey and they were so determined. After that, they just kept on winning and it was amazing. And they did get to the World Cup in 2015. And that was the most incredible moment for their country. Mm. In fact, the best short form bowler in the world, the best 2020 bowler in the world right now is an Afghani, Rashid Khan. You know that well, I, I know. And he is one whose family had fled to Pakistan. Uh, and he's a very good example of what you're talking about. What, could, could you have imagined when you took that kit back and you got games going in, in those dust playgrounds and fields and I can almost vision burnt out Russian tanks sort of creating your boundary boards. Could you have imagined that you would harbour a thing of such enormity that people playing in that environment would go on to represent Afghanistan in a World Cup. I know you could see the dream, but could you imagine the reality? No, because I've been going to Afghanistan for so many years. In 2001, um, there was no cricket. I couldn't see any cricket being played. You know, you never could imagine back then that Afghanistan would be where they are now. As the team kept winning, the country had their first heroes for years. They had their first joy and hope. And on the back of that, everyone wanted to play cricket. And so we were able to come in at that stage. We managed to get support from the MCC. We managed to get support from the Foreign Office and from private donors. And, and we started supporting the infrastructure. So we built over 100 cricket pitches in schools. And we provided coaching. The Afghan national team coached kids for us. Gradually, you saw this huge rise of cricket in the sort of wake of the success of the Afghan national cricket team. So I can't take you know, full responsibility for that. We did what we could and we provided cricket for thousands of kids. But the Afghan cricket team are the ones that led the way and inspired a whole generation to take up their bats. And the story of Afghan cricket, no team has ever risen so fast in such a short amount of time and to such a successful platform. Yes, I mean, for listeners who aren't au fait with the game, Afghanistan weren't recognised as an associate member nation of the International Cricket Conference until the early 2000s and weren't granted full member status for, oh, I mean, until uh, 2017, I think, when they became a test-playing nation. So they played in the World Cup in 2015. So that journey was already in situ um, and progressing slowly when you became involved and it accelerated. And, of course... Through your input, it became a, a wider canvas suddenly that Afghanistan cricket could be built upon. You, you tied in the Afghan connection with uh, education as well, yes, and also, I think, opportunities for women and for girls and for underprivileged children. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. You know, education had been devastated under the years of Taliban. There were just 5,000 girls in school when I started in 2001. There are now more than 3 million. So education was at the centre and, and then it, it very much spread to the sport as well. And I, I think that cricket is such a wonderful sport for bringing people together, for giving confidence and for allowing young people to really fulfil their potential. And we've done cricket for boys, for girls. We've, we did disability cricket. We supported visually impaired kids to play cricket. It was really helping, helping those who were receiving no aid from the international community or the government, helping those who were really had nothing in life. And, and that's why I love cricket in Afghanistan. I think that out there, all young people can believe that they can play for their national team because their team came from the refugee camps of Pakistan. They came from very, very poor backgrounds. And I think that that's what we need to replicate in this country, really. 
you know, that, that sort of, that fervor of really believing that you can play for your national team, really believing that you can, you can do great things through cricket. Where, wherever you come from, yeah. Well, let's get back to the nitty-gritty of this. The, the societal and religious issues that must have confronted you trying to encourage girls to play cricket, that can't have been easy. No, I think my whole approach in Afghanistan through education, through health and through cricket was don't impose, you know, don't try and impose your idea of what you think is the right thing on Afghanistan. So always talk to the communities, find out why won't they let their girls go to school. You know, a lot of it's poverty. You know, they just can't let their girls go because they need them to be in the homes helping them or in the fields. A lot of it is about uh, taboos. They don't want their daughters taught by men. They don't want their daughters studying outside. They want protection for them. They need schools in the communities. And it's the same with cricket. You know, sport is something that hasn't been a traditional part of girls' life in Afghanistan. It's got to come slowly. And we always made sure that girls had very, very sensible kit, long shirts, long scarves, long trousers, and that they played cricket behind walls, that we got parental consent. And so slowly, slowly it built up. Our last project in Afghanistan, because the, the, the charities now come to a close, is, um, was to help 500 girls with coaching and to train 50 female coaches. And the joy of those girls to be able to take part was absolutely amazing. But what's the most fantastic thing is the Afghan Cricket Board have taken up that momentum. They, with their one member of, of the board who is female, have now got the same girls, given them tournaments between each other. There's been a big tournament between Kabul and Herat. And they've oh. formed a national women's team, which was, they disbanded the last team in 2013. So I feel that, you know, there are such seeds of hope, but it, it's a very slow journey. The Taliban are very against girls' cricket. You know, some girls risk their life to play, so you have to be very, very careful in a traditional environment. Now, let's take a short break for a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Not Just Cricket with me, Mark Nicholas. Let's get back to where we were just a moment ago. I'm going to ask you about Matthew Fleming, who's a mutual friend of ours, once in the army, went on to be an outstanding cricketer for Kent and England in one day cricket and indeed to become president of MCC. And you took him with you. And he talks about an MCC spirit of cricket camp in Jalalabad and having to play, and he said he had visions of being in one of Ross Kemp's shows, you know, one of those documentaries about dangerous areas, and really feeling extremely threatened. And at one stage, an elder came up and whispered to you both that it was time for you to leave, and he meant it, which meant get out of there, because there are threatening forces arriving. How much has he exaggerated that story? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's not exaggerated. Um, I, first of all, I'd like to say that Matthew is one of those people, you look back on your the life of the charity, and you think there are people that make huge change for you and he was one of them he got the MCC behind us he came to Afghanistan he was amazing we did have a couple of incidents the road from Kabul to Jalalabad is one of the most dangerous roads in the world both for speeding drivers and also for Taliban popping guns from the hills we tried to avoid that by going in a tiny plane and we got caught in a thunderstorm and we you have to avoid whatever it is the missiles and things so you do a funny spiraling down into the airport so that was probably no safer than the road. And on the way back, we actually had to go by road. There were the odd moments of danger, but really the overriding feeling was it was incredible that we managed to do this cricket camp. The whole national cricket team were there. Matthew was there. 
there were hundreds of children there. And then we were looked after by villagers who, who took us off to their villages. And, and it was incredible. So I think, yes, he didn't exaggerate, but you know, it's give and take out there. I must ask you how often you've taken risks that you shouldn't have and risks that you got lucky with and to some degree at least you regret. I have no idea. I think the great thing about my work and life in Afghanistan was that it was like swimming in the sea. You never know what's underneath. <laughs> you don't know if there's a shark that's there to bite you. And so it never feels like that. And and I think what people here find so hard to understand is that you can actually feel safer than anywhere in the world in Afghanistan. You can feel more loved and more safe than anywhere else in the world. And and the places I've been to and got to know, the hospitality of I've, I've received and, and the security I feel, people would give their lives for you. You know, of course, there are dangers in traveling, getting from A to B. Of course, there are malevolent forces. But my overriding feeling when I'm in Afghanistan is one of security and happiness because the people are so giving and if you're very careful and you stick with the right people and you don't preserve yourself by taking a gun but you preserve yourself by speaking to the locals by making sure it's safe to go somewhere then that's much better security than than going out in full body armor with a gun i'm gonna nick a couple of quotes from you i think it was the independent i found this article 30 years ago it was commonplace to see young boys walking the streets with kalashnikovs uh, now they walk the streets with homemade wooden bats a young cricketer in Afghanistan said to you 10 years ago, there was nothing now in the streets, in the schools, everywhere. There's just cricket. And of course, South Asia's love affair with the game was, it was a good place for you to be. Now, this is the paragraph that's blown me away. Since 2008, which is when you've already described, you got underway with cricket in, within the Afghan connection. We've delivered kit to the national team. We've built more than 100 cricket pitches in schools, serving some 100,000 girls and boys. We've coached 4,700 children and 180 teachers, and we've held tournaments across the whole of Afghanistan for both boys and girls. That must make you extraordinarily proud. Oh, it is. it's nice to hear it, actually. You sort of forget. And... And actually, it's the culmination of so much work and so from so many people, from my team and from actually the most generous donors. So it is a wonderful story. And, and I think, yes, I am proud to have been a part of that. It's a feel good. It's, it's brought a lot of joy. And I think that in a country that's had 40 years of war, that kind of joy is, is hard to measure, but it's so important. I must tell our listeners that Sarah has so far had the warmest smile on her face as she's explained these various situations in which she's found herself and been able to, to influence. And therefore, I ask you, has there been any cost personally at any stage? Oh, yes. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, when you take on something like your own charity and it is such a mission, there are lots of other things that go awry in life and it's hard to balance everything. So, yes, of course it has its cost. But I think that what I've really loved about it is seeing how my children have embraced it and how it has affected their lives and how it's opened their world and other young people's eyes to another world. Um, so I think there's very, very good things that have come out of it. And of course, there have been personal costs along the way. You said a moment ago that the charity has now closed down. That's simply because you've finished your time in Afghanistan or you're not able to give more time to it? No, I always wanted it to be a charity which was not going to be a charity forever. I wanted to make a, a big impact in Afghanistan, whose sort of momentum was then taken on by the Afghan people. 
So we did 18 years, which is a whole generation of young people. We got to a stage where I was thinking about closing in a couple of years, but then the Taliban started charging taxes on NGOs and, and it got difficult to build schools because you had to, to contract out the work. And I just didn't want to become a, a non-transparent charity. We did really well because we acted transparently always, in, even though we worked in a very difficult country. And so it came to the point where the cricket was definitely taken off. The schools had taken off. We had 80% of girls in, in one region we're working in going to school. And so we felt this was the right moment. But it was such a hard decision. And I remember going for a long walk and coming back, having made the decision and ringing my mother and saying, that's it, mum. And what will I ever do in my future? And literally 10 minutes after that conversation, I had a call from the MCC Foundation saying they were looking for a director. And it was like, what? <laughs> this is extraordinary. This must be meant. I sense that you mightn't quite let go of that part of the world. Am I right there that you'd always be, be dragged back in some form or another? I'm sure you're right. And I, I think it's great that we're, we're supporting Nepal through the foundation and they've got a great ambition to be the next Afghanistan. So that's something very exciting for us. Also, I want to support refugees. So we're doing a lot to support refugees in this country through cricket. And we're starting to support a project in Lebanon for Syrian refugees through cricket. So I, I feel that refugees, you know, they're at such a terrible point in their lives, but they're also an amazing way of spreading cricket, as we've seen in Afghanistan. And Germany, for example, has 350 cricket clubs now because of the Afghan refugees there. So part of my work with the foundation will be to support refugee cricket across the world as a great way of spreading cricket and a great way of helping young children at a difficult time. And what, um, you know, g given the fact that you've changed tens of thousands of lives, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives, you've, you've um, been awarded an OBE, um, the people I've spoken to, which is... You know, cricketers, administrators, I've heard politicians talk. You, you, you know, you have enormous respect, wide respect. What are your own lessons from this journey that you, you can now pass on? I think being nimble, being able to go yourself, to see a problem for yourself and to go with a fresh eye and then to listen to people, especially the people you're trying to help. Those are the lessons I really learn. You know, listen to communities, listen to why things aren't working, listen to the problems. And as I said before, don't try and impose your own, your own thoughts on it. And I think also it's been such a rewarding life. It, it's not something I look at as all achievements. It's something that I've, I've got so much back from for myself because it is, you know, the people I've met from, you know, I've talked at lots of schools in, in the UK. We twinned schools with schools in Afghanistan. I wanted young people here to open their eyes to the problems of people across the world. And, you know, just that, just planting those seeds and seeing how those kids, like some of them now are coming back to me years later and they're still supporting and they're running things of their own. You know, just trying to encourage people, I think, to believe. You have to have the belief that you can cause change. And so many of us, we just look at the world and it seems so depressing. But we can make change, and even as individuals. And I think that's a great lesson in life, you know, not to be overwhelmed by the big picture, but to take things a step at a time. And then it's amazing what you can do. Yeah. I, I want you to leave us with, a, with a, a final thought, really. I see you as an adventurer, an explorer, a risk taker, but in order to benefit other people as your, as your end game. And I wondered in this 30-year journey if you could pick a moment that has most moved you, really, above all else, a, a moment that stands out and will always live with you. 
That's quite a difficult one. But I, I think that probably it is this meeting, this remarkable girl at this school that we built in the middle of nowhere. Honestly, I don't know how it ever got built in a very, very poor area where hardly any girls go to school. And there was this one girl that had had a dream, which I particularly loved, that she would be the first girl ever to complete an education and would then help her village to make sure that all the girls got education. And she'd managed to stay at this school throughout. She was the only girl left. All the other girls had, had left the school. And she did graduate. And we supported her through teacher training. And she's now become a teacher at the school. And when I met her for the first time, and I met her father, who had given up everything to ensure that she had an education and they took us to their home and it was snowing so it was so bleak and we were sort of slipping on the mud to get to this home and it was so poor and he sat there and talked about why he'd done this for his daughter and and how proud of her he was I think that's probably that's a pretty good moment and really she embodies everything that I think we wanted to do you know she is she is the future of her country and it's a, it's a little piece of history of our lives that, where they crossed. Sarah Fain, doctor, adventurer, humanitarian, life changer. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That was a great privilege. Well, I've got to say, Sarah is one of the most inspirational people I've come across. My thanks to her and all good wishes as she drives on and on for the benefit of others. Next week, we have another woman whose achievements broke no argument. Claire Balding is amongst the preeminent broadcasters of the age, at ease with the many sports she brings to life on our television screens, and arguably even more at ease when rambling through the countryside with her array of stellar guests. Now, subscribe to Not Just Cricket in this feed or on any other platform where you find your podcasts and expect new episodes every Thursday. This is a Message Heard production. Our producer is Eva Krisiak, and the music is composed by Matt Huxley. It's goodbye for now. Thank you.